Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. If you would like a one-on-one conversation to help you get clear on what you want in life and what's in your way of getting there, visit theandygrant.com slash talk and book a no-obligation, no-cost appointment. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. This episode is brought to you by mensgroup.com. I know the power of men's groups, and by visiting mensgroup.com slash RMF, that's RMF standing for Real Men Feel, you can experience that power yourself. You'll see a short message from me, and you'll have the opportunity to try a men's group for free. This is virtual, online. You can be part of it from anywhere. It's uh, an amazing platform that engages you with other like-minded men. Uh, you might even find me in there, but it's a great resource. I invite you to check it out. Now, I am an author, a coach, a suicide loss survivor, which means that I have lost family members to suicide, and I am a suicide attempt survivor, which means I've tried to end my life. Uh, these are especially worrisome and isolating times that can increase anxiety, depression, and suicide attempts. I believe that silence kills men. So today's conversation is just one way to change that. There's going to be two men with lived experience discussing the pain and shame around suicide loss. So if you are having any thoughts of ending your life or harming yourself, please let someone know. Often the bravest thing you can do is ask for help. So for confidential support available 24-7 for everybody in the United States, you can call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. You can also get support via text with, through the crisis text line. In the U.S. and Canada, you can text HOME to 741741. Again, that's 741741. For other countries, please visit crisistextline.org. All right. So... Hopefully you're sticking with us. You're in a safe place. You're good to go. I'm very excited to have my guest today. He is a retired Pennsylvania state trooper, author, and suicide prevention advocate. Glad to welcome Govan Martin. Hey, Andy. How you doing? Great very you. good. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and thank you for sharing those numbers because we know that they save lives. And, uh, and I'm so happy to be here today to talk about, you know, how we can get through one of the some of the worst things in our life that could happen to us hmm. and like you i am a loss survivor so Good. again thank you so much for having me aboard cool yeah so what i want to ask you what what brings you to suicide prevention work so it sounds like it was on your personal experience unfortunately yeah it's i call it the club that no one wants to belong to um and uh, i lost my brother michael when he was 16 years old to suicide and Unfortunately, I came home one day from school and found him. So kind of, that was 40 years ago in January, and it's affected every day of my life going forward from there. So that's what brings me here today to talk to you and to talk to everybody else who's listening, because um, we know that suicide impacts 
and not just the people that, you know, have lost a loved one. Uh, it's also, you know, uh, friends, family, communities. Um, it has the ripple effect, as we like to say, that can go on and on and on. And unfortunately, men don't want to talk about those things because we're embarrassed to talk about it. It makes us feel weak. And uh, unfortunately, I was one of them people that I didn't talk about it for years and years and years and years. There was no kind of suicide prevention work 40 years ago, especially when I was only 17. So you've lost your brother, you find him, it's got to be a traumatic experience. Did you share it at all? Or you were, you know, just to seem strong to your friends and family? Did you just shut up about it all? Oh, boy. Um, you know, it was, I don't think I really shared it. I think um, you didn't talk about suicide back then. I think, you know, going back through, you know, even going to the funeral, um, and the, the days before, I think I slept my way through that. Mm. Um, you know, my best friend at the time lived down the street and, and we went to his house and my brother was actually still alive for about an hour. And, uh, so I went to the, uh, my pediatrician at the time and got, a, I think I got a shot and cause I was definitely in shock. And so about an hour after that, my voice is quivering right now because it's still right back there. Yeah. And my dad then, you know, came down there and said my brother Michael had died. And, and so um, just remember screaming and yelling. And, and But then it's funny that really didn't talk about it after that. And, um, you know, I mean, people kind of said, I'm really sorry. But they never said kind of really, how are you really doing? And I wouldn't even, and if, and if they did, I gave them, okay. Um, and, you know, so I went back to school that next week and, and, and a couple people, you know, while I was going in and out of class would say, Hey, I'm really sorry. But no one, no one actually said, go in, let's sit down and talk. Yeah. The only one that really did is when I got back from the funeral, uh, my then girlfriend's father, uh, sent everybody out of the house cause I went straight there. And he said, I want to talk to you alone. He said, go in. If you ever need anything, I'm here for you and we'll do anything for you. And I just started dating uh, his daughter maybe a month ago, but that to me left the lasting impression and still does to this day because he's the only one that kind of offered help mm. and was willing to talk about it if I wanted to talk about it. But, you know, and not knowing him very well at that time, I said, thanks and I'll be okay. But I wasn't okay. I just tried to stuff it down and uh, being like the strong teenager. Um, and uh, because I know I would have never admitted to getting help. Uh, my dad actually um, said, I'm going to send you to see a psychologist. You just have to go one time, but I want you to go. And that psychologist asked me yes or no questions. He said, how are you doing? Okay. Uh, were you traumatized by the incident? No. Um, how are you doing things? Okay. And I gave him everything he asked, but it was only, you know, kind of yes or no, or one or two word answers because he really didn't delve into anything. And, uh, but I don't think he even mentioned the word suicide. And if we don't talk about suicide, and again, again, it was 40 years ago, but you know, you would think that the mental health field would have, even back then, just try to have a discussion with somebody and ask more open-ended questions, but he didn't. 
Yeah. It's, it's not like suicide is some new phenomena. No. <laughs> Unfortunately. No. <laughs> no. And, and what we're finding out is like there was a lot of suicides back in World War II and in the uh, late 40s and 50s. And now the levels are kind of back there. So this is no surprise. Mm. Um, so, but, the, you know, the scary part is, is that, you know, I thought I was doing okay. Um, and I, at the time I was going through what I like to call the trifecta because six months earlier before my brother died, my parents had gotten separated and we were kind of the only family that were um, in the neighborhood and amongst my friends that parents had gotten divorced. And then fast forward to my brother. So, um, and you know, so I went through the next, you know, several months, you know, graduated high school and everything. Uh, stayed at home to go to college because I wanted to be around my girlfriend because they were a huge support and, and they always made me laugh and everything. But while I was stuffing things down, I was also kind of latching on to my girlfriend and because she was the only thing that was keeping me sane along with her family. And I think because I was holding on so tight that she said, hey, go in, I, I can't do this anymore. And, and you know, as I you know, came to realize years later is that I call it the trifecta effect and everything just went, it just dumped. And I just, I didn't, I was lost. I didn't know where to turn, didn't know who to talk to. No one asked me about my brother. Um, I think people, I think people felt bad, but they didn't know what to say to me. And the, the scary part is people still don't know what to say uh, all these years later to me or to uh, people who are losing loved ones every day. Also to people who are even thinking about suicide, they just don't know what to say or do. So, but you think that, you know, I can talk to other, I mean, if I'm going to talk to anybody, I'm going to talk to, you would like to talk to other men, but sometimes men don't want to listen because, or we feel that other men don't want to listen because we don't want to be classified as, oh, you can't handle this. You're weak. And we don't know where to go because the last thing we want to do is so-called go on a couch and lay down and talk to somebody, you know, uh, because it's the weak thing to do or the, you know, and also when people talk about suicide, they say things about taking the easy way out and there people can be very judgmental on that aspect. So why would I want to talk to those people? So, you know, through many years in my life, I kind of felt really lost. So I'll let you ask another question now, because I'll just keep on going on. So. <laughs> That's fine. Were, do you, were you somehow taught or told not to talk about suicide? No, not really. I think because it, no one brought it up. My, like my family didn't bring up, I, you know, I don't really remember like my dad. Or, then, or generally in society then. If, if, so if you didn't talk about it, others around you didn't, like where does that come from? You know, uh, prior to uh, my brother Michael dying, uh, his friend actually died by suicide about two years prior to that. And I know it was brought up at the, at the dinner table. But it was a quick discussion, and that's so sad. And that was it. Um, but also around that time, too, if, if you remember, and you might not be, as, you're not as old as me, but, you know, going back to 1980, um, 
there is also a stigma about suicide, especially in religion. I grew up Catholic and, you know, growing up through Catholic school um, and in the church, we believe that if you died by suicide, you were going to hell. Hmm. And I will tell you the one, th- one of the things that was, that saved me, I think that saved my faith was right prior to the funeral. Um, I had asked the priest right before going into church, was my brother going to hell? And I didn't know what he would say. Um, and it's still like, I go back right now to that feeling of the angst, the anxiety of asking that question. And he said, Gobin, if Michael is in that much trauma and hurting so much, God's not going to punish him even more. And it was just like, a breath of fresh air and I could keep my faith uh, that God was going to be taking care of Michael and um, that, you know, more than anything that I wanted to believe in my faith and knowing that my brother wasn't going to hell because, you know, and people were still taught that way. Now I know religion is trying to change that aspect, but in some ways it's still out there. And, you know, where do you go sometimes if, if you don't have your faith, if you don't have people around you to talk to, if people don't want to talk about it or people, you know, are being judgmental about the person that you lose. That's, that's really scary. I, I, ha- I had my faith and I, ha- I had my friends, but they, my friends wouldn't talk about it. So I was kind of like, I was in the middle of nowhere. I, I, I was lost in the tornado of that trifecta and i was just on the in the midst of that tornado turning and turning and turning and not knowing what to do or who to go to to talk about it but so that's probably the best way i could put it is is the stigma just not talking about it like leaving you alone to stew or is, is it are there other aspects of stigma or is that primarily it just this is something we just do not talk about it no one talked about it I think, and if people did talk about it, because, you know, people would be talking about, um, you know, in other conversations about suicide, and they would say the ugliest things. And then that, that puts you just more grounded into, uh, how can I talk about it with, I don't, I didn't want the people, you know, people feeling sorry for me, affect. Um, and, and I didn't want to hear that my brother's going to hell. I didn't want to hear that he took the easy way out. Uh, so it's like when, when people did talk about it, it was very derogatory and judgmental. Yeah, not, not, not knowing that I was a loss survivor. And, and then it just, like, again, it keeps you, uh, in a sense, closeted. And, that, and then, you know, when I, you know as I, I, I really, like, and I was very shy as a kid. And, um, but, and after that, I really didn't date a lot. And, but when I did, or I'd meet people for the first time and they asked me, you know, hey, did you grow up with a family? And I, you know, I said, yeah. And I said, you know, I had a brother and he died. And they go, what did he die of? Suicide. And the constant response, I still get that to this day. It's, oh. Yeah. And that's it. Oh. And, very frustrating. Um, 
And, you know, and a lot of times there isn't any conversation, you know, other than, oh, I'm sorry. But I think what gives me, it gives me more incentive to talk about this because it is healing for me to talk about it. But also that when people actually go, well, tell me more about your brother. That's great. You know, and because as law survivors, sometimes we get, we get too many O's and we get the fact that people don't want to talk about suicide. Um, because really as growing up, people don't talk about suicide. It's not, now it's becoming a lot different, but it's still kind of in a closeted category where, you know, um, usually, uh, not necessarily from schools, but also families and also how, you know, uh, generations were raised, uh, to, you know, think that if you died by suicide, you're crazy. You had some type of mental yeah. illness, yeah. things like that. Very, yeah. very, very ugly. And that's why we need to talk about it to change that idea, yeah. uh, of that, um, that, uh, that stigma that's still there yeah. every day. When, when I was, so I, I, attempted suicide multiple times in my teens and the only place I heard anyone talk about suicide was in the mental hospital which made it seem just even crazier like even just having this idea I having this desire made me just unlike any other human being except the people they got locked up um, yeah. and I also what this is a theory I developed you know as a as a kid that because I've had the experience too like like where you been Andy like I was in the hospital oh why I tried to kill myself oh and as an adult, my grandfather died by suicide. And I go, oh, I just lost my grandfather. People go, oh, what happened? And like, suicide. Oh. So yeah, I've totally had that experience. Yeah. And I, th I think it's, it's such a painful – nobody wants to feel that pain. So they don't, they don't want to, you to go through that pain. They don't want to feel that pain. So it's just, oh. And that oh is just the wall coming down. And like, all right, let's not – nobody wants to feel that because um, – you know, I think if someone, people are afraid, like, wow, if you attempted or you know someone that attempted and they seemed fine, they seemed normal, what does that mean for me? Maybe I'm not as safe as I thought, right? Yeah, it's, it's, you could catch it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, if you hang around somebody too long. Um, but I, I, I want to really say how brave you are to talk about that um, because not a lot of people do, especially men who attempt. That's just still kind of that taboo subject. Um, and it takes a lot of courage for you to come out and say that. Um, and so I want to commend you right away because we need more of you out there. Yeah. Right. And why I did it, I realized again, when I was, a kid, I, let alone no one talking about it as a teenager, I never heard of anyone that was suicidal and then later wasn't like they got past it and actually enjoyed their life. I didn't know that was a possibility at all. No, no doctor ever said that. It was just, yep. You're messed up. Yep. Your chemicals are out of balance. Yep. Try these pills. Here you go. There was no like, yeah, life can get better. There was just life can be tolerated. That, that was the most hope I was given. You can somehow get by. Well, you know, really for a lot of years, you didn't hear about the attempt survivors. You just heard of people dying by suicide, period. But you didn't hear about people who, uh, who lived through an attempt. And, uh, and they had no voice and really, um, um, and I'm, I'm so glad that people are you, like you are courageous enough to, to go out there and talk about it. 
but we need more of you. Um, especially men, men have, you know, definitely the highest rate of suicide. And, but I think we need other men supporting us and allowing us to talk about it um, with them. And that's why, you know, when I teach classes about suicide prevention, you know, it's the biggest thing that we have to do is engage in that conversation and then create a connection that I can talk to you, you can talk to me, and we're going to get you the help that you need. And, and it's really that basic in a sense and being non-judgmental, but it's a lot of work, especially I think because uh, especially for um, in the mental health field or, or those who are vulnerable, we have a hard time trusting others because we see what, how the public reacts to the word suicide or even uh, to mental illness. So uh, again, people can sometimes, you know, think it's contagious um, or that if I hang around somebody too long, that it's going to affect themselves or their family or stuff like that. And or if you bring, if you say suicide, that will make people do it. Like, wow, I never thought of that before. Thanks for saying that word. Like it, you know, it does not work like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think really, I always say, you know, that everybody has an emotional backpack and growing up through life. So, you know, I say at 17, I had, you know, my parents splitting up. I had my brother dying and then I had my girlfriend breaking up with me and my, at 17, when I got to 18, my emotional backpack was pretty darn full. Mm. But that doesn't stop life from happening. So, and especially when I'm not talking about it. So, then, yeah, you know, it makes your other, backpack rip, <laughs> get heavier. Yeah. 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 So I show this picture in the train with this guy carrying a huge, large backpack because if we don't talk about it soon, what happens to us? We do have some type of turmoil or emotional breakdowns, or we sometimes ourselves become maybe thinking about suicide because, you know, when that backpack fills up, we, we are stuffed with pain. It's not like you're not putting that emotional backpack filled with happiness. Oh, I'm in love because that sometimes lets out the air, but it's all life happens. And if we don't allow ourselves to talk to somebody or people won't ask about our lives and excuse the part of, I'll talk to you anything about except your brother hmm. or about anything else. All, all people, uh, people going through tough times and people trying to support them. Everybody needs to be more comfortable in being uncomfortable. Yeah. And then we find the connection and then we can all feel more comfortable no matter how we were in the beginning, just by that connection. And you know, for, for so me, true. I had this big fear that if I ever told anyone how I really felt, they would run away. So often you don't need to, you don't need to talk, but you need to not say, oh, just say, I'm here, or I hear you, put a hand on a shoulder. Like it, you don't have to do a lot. You just have to kind of be there and stay open in some respect. And just say, you know, if that's something you want to talk about, hey, I'm willing to listen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really simple. Everybody tries to make talking about life complicated. Yeah. And it's really not, especially when, you know, the talking about those tough things. And if we allow, and hopefully if they allow themselves just a little bit of, you know, empathy and just to understand where we're coming from. And it's not necessarily, we're not going to tell them anything that they probably can't handle. It's just having that one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody and just saying, wow, that, that had to be really hard. 
And just, you know, a couple words can be huge and can be comforting. And just to allow that emotional backpack just to sift down at the bottom. So hopefully when, you know, uh, sometimes when you're talking about it, um, and especially at a time when things get tough. So if you go and you're here and life is just kind of overwhelming, and then somebody says, hey, what's going on with you? And then they allow you to talk without being judgmental. Hopefully you're going to go from, oh my God, I can't handle this, to thanks for listening. And, and, uh, um, and listening can be hard um, because sometimes people want to fix the problem. Right. And it's yeah. not about fixing the problem. You can't yeah. fix it. No. But, but you can just be comforting and yeah. just go, wow, okay, so, but I'm here for you. No matter, right. you know, if, if they're your friend, I'm here for you. Even if they're not friends, it's always nice to meet new friends and have those people um, yeah. be open enough to tell you about what's going on with them. Yeah, sometimes it's easy for a stranger because there isn't any prior. There's no attachment. There's no connection already. Oh, I, so I can just help you feel your pain. And yeah. it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change my outlook on you or myself. It's just like, wow, that, again, just not, oh, and shut up with a blank look like, oh, that's, yeah. that must have been hard. Or I've had loss, but I can't imagine that. Or, you know, share and just be vulnerable to someone. Let them be vulnerable with you. Um, again, yeah, it's, it's not that hard. But yeah, it's fear that stops people, right? Absolutely. A fear of being judged. Yeah. Especially like, you know, by other men. Because, because especially like in the career that I got into in the state police, you did not talk about, uh, you know, going to incidents and, you know, and the things that you saw. Hmm. So uh, like my, my, one of my first big incidents was a suicide. Uh, about how to, to me it was, you know, to somebody else, it might've been something else, but to me, you know, it put me right back in that place with my brother. And I, you know, um, and it was about a year and a half out that that happened. And um, boy, I had to like, I just remember kind of being in shock again and reliving some of the memories. Sure. Um, but again, that was another piece of when my emotional backpack that I didn't talk about. Right. That's the part. If we don't express, like our emotions exist to be felt, not to be stuffed and packed away. So when that's something cool. else, that's like, I don't, I think it's much more difficult for humans to be triggered if they don't have the backpack full of unexpressed emotions. Like that's yeah. why you can be brought back to something that you never dealt with because you never dealt with it. You're, you're, you're bringing that situation with you everywhere you go. So it's easy to be, you know, tricked off. And I, I call it time travel when you, you mentally and emotionally go back. Ah. Wow. You know, you're, you know, it's not a good thing. You're like unconsciously time traveling and re-traumatizing yourself and still not talking about it. So now you've got layer upon layer of unexpressed emotions and fear and worry. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a rough circle that we can only stop by, you know, so how, how did you stop it? At some point, you must have talked. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I do want to bring up, uh, I had another, uh, I had a friend who died by suicide in the interim. So it was about 11 years after my brother died and, and I was dating somebody. And when we first started dating, she said that she had attempted suicide uh, years ago in high school. And I said, well, you know, thanks for sharing. And we got along, but however, you know, I think we dated for six months and, didn't work out. So 
but we still remained friends and we still talked. And one night she called me up and um, she said that she was thinking about suicide. And um, boy, I didn't know how to handle that. I was 29, I think. And uh, um, I'm sorry, I was 31. I was 31 and all I did was I talked to her for like four hours. And she was at her parents. Uh, she moved back in with her parents because she was having uh, some problems. And, um, and they put her on all kinds of types of medication. Um, but, you know, she felt the best outlet for her was to talk to somebody. And she knew that we were, we always communicated very well as far as being open enough to, to share our weaknesses with each other, especially talking about suicide. So, you know, throughout it's like, you know, she said she was seeing a mental health professional. She said she was on mental you know, uh, medication. Um, she said that, you know, her parents were, you know, supporting her whatever way she needed. Um, but, you know, she just felt that she couldn't go on living anymore. And um, so I, th I said, you know, the last couple of words, are you okay? I mean, I, I was asking her that the whole time. She goes, yeah, I feel a lot better now. Thanks. So the next morning, unfortunately, I get a call from her best friend that said that, you know, that she had overdosed and um and died by suicide and uh that just hit me like a ton of bricks because i had blamed my myself for my brother and then now i and that on top of it i blame me it's like what well, i didn't know you know what to do where to go so right in my emotional backpack and um it, yeah it, it was scary because then it just and so it was affecting a lot of my also relationships also too. So, so it got to a point to where I started um, to run the peer support program in the state police. And our peer support is when, you know, we help people for any number of issues, job issues, uh, relationship issues. And all we're doing is, is sitting down and talking to people. And I have to tell the story being a man uh, that um, one of the questions going into peer support was, so go in, if you would have any, you know, problems yourself, would you reach out for help? Of course I would. That's what, you know, hey, I'm tough. I can handle it. And I, 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 and I, and I would reach out. But inside, there's like, there's no way in hell I'm going to reach out for help. So, um, and I was lying to myself. I, I knew that, you know, that was a complete BS answer. So I found myself two years later, I had a luncheon with uh, two psychologists. We were talking about, you know, peer training. And all of a sudden I started to cry in the middle of lunch. And uh, the one guy looks over me and says, what's wrong? And I said, you know, I just, uh, my girlfriend just broke up with me. Um, and I went through the multitude of problems that, that we were having. And he goes, go in, you need to talk to somebody. And I said, yeah, I think I do. And so, uh, you know, I was in counseling for eight years after that. That was in the year 2000. Uh, and what I found out was a lot of the issues that I was having all went back to my brother and, uh, and, and not being able to talk about it. I mean, I went a couple of years without even trying to, um, trying to not talk about my brother 
um, to talk about all the other issues surrounding everything else, the relationships and the job stress and everything like that. But it's funny how when we zeroed down that it really came back to the guilt that I felt about my brother and about, you know, uh, my past friend and her name is Joanne. And, um, yeah, it, it's still, you know, it's still there. Um, but really what I found out was talking helped so much and, uh, talk about, <laughs> well, first, when I first talked about it, it was like a lot of sifting went out of that emotional backpack. Um, but I, I tell you, you know, counseling was, was great, but really where, what really helped me was I started getting involved a lot more in suicide prevention at the time because of my peer support work. And so there are some state committees that were started in Pennsylvania. And I said, well, I would like to join. And I went there and the leader of, of that uh, committee um, said that she lost her brother's suicide too. So I thought what would be a, like at the end of the session, hey, Heidi, can I talk to you? And she said, sure what I thought was gonna be a five minute conversation because I thought even among survivors, the common response would be, oh. So it turned out to be a two hour conversation. And what a relief that was. Um, because it, one, she could relate and she gave me permission to talk about my brother because it's one thing talking to a mental health professional, but it's another thing talking about it to someone who can relate and understand and understand the loss and the grief that went into losing somebody. And, um, and then after that, you know, when I started getting involved in these committees, you know, we were doing trainings and then I started meeting a multitude of people who had either attempted or, or lost someone to suicide and, and to hear their stories is so powerful. Um, and, um, and it also helped me to talk about uh, what I went through with Michael and Joanne and, uh, you know, other people who were coming to me because of peer support or because of the trainings that I would do talk about their issues. And, and so our, my job was to get them help. Um, but also my job is to listen and to empathize and to make sure that they knew they were being heard. Because I think that's one of the main things, that, that life is not over that there is hope out there and there is healing. Um, and so with all those things combined, I, um, and what I learned and still am learning because you can't get rid of that, that still that emotional backpack that, that I still carry. But, and I can honestly say that, am I healed for my brother? No, I'll, I'll never be healed. But I'm always in that healing process that I'm always surrounding myself with positive people, or I try to anyway. And um, if I can get others to talk about it, it helps me, but also helps me when I do training to try and get people to not only, you know, open up themselves to me during the training or after the training's over or, you know, to get emails and phone calls. But hopefully along the way that we're, you know, we're saving lives by doing this stuff. Andy, you're saving lives by talking about it today. And again, I want to thank you for doing this because 
these conversations are so important and we can't take this for granted. And unfortunately, men seem to have the most difficult time to talk, you know, difficult times in talking about it. Because when you think about it, you know, when we grow up, especially if we have uh, the father figure uh, all of a sudden leave our lives for whatever reason. Uh, like if the father figure dies when they're young, what do we say to those kids? You're the man of the family now. That's a lot of responsibility. And, and we, we just take that in. And, and also, like when I grew up, and I think as a lot of families grew up, we don't talk about our problems to the outside world. And, uh, um, but what is good, and I know my dad changed his philosophy uh, later on, but, but what we all find out is talking is good. And talking be, can be so cathartic. But we have to get to that place. And, but people like me and you have to get people to the table. We have to get people to be open up and, and talking about it. But also we have to train the mental health field also to listen because still we have a lot of uh, work to do with people shying away from the word suicide. And so we have to have all these conversations all the time. It just can't be, you know, during suicide prevention month. It has to be every month is suicide prevention month. Every day is suicide prevention day. Yeah. That's exactly what I said that day. Like I, I, like I I hate this day. It shouldn't exist because it should be every day. There shouldn't be a, there's not a pro suicide day. Why is there an APL like preventive day? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, You've, so men are expected and pressured to, to not show emotions, to not share, to keep everything stoic and bottled up. Is that even stronger for police officers? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you think of, you know, police officers, veterans, uh, people in the first responder field, people who have, like, the, their job is their identity. Um, and because I'm not just a... You know, I wasn't just a police officer for uh, those 29 years. You were a police officer or during, you know, your 3 to 11 shift. You're a police officer 24-7 because, you know, if my neighbor has a problem, they're going to come over and get you. If a friend of mine gets a ticket, they're going to call you. But through it all, it's like, you know, like when I went through the academy, uh, you were said, we were taught, okay, your only friends are in this room today or in this organization. And we don't talk about our problems uh, outside of this organization. But we're also taught, um, you know, when we're looking at some pretty gruesome pictures of some incidents that occur, if this bothers you, you'll never make it through. Or, you know, or seeing a, a, you know, a mental health professional is weak. That still exists. That was, that's truly part of training? That was, at that time, Unfortunately, yeah. Wow. Um, that's and, heartbreaking. Uh, well, that's why, you know, a couple of years later, they created what was called the Member Assistance Program, which was a peer support team. And I'm proud to say that my dad was in that first class. I think my dad wanted to learn from what happened with my brother and wanted to help other people because uh, my dad was a state trooper too. But we needed to change the mindset, but it took years and years for the peer support team to grow into, because really it evolved out of substance abuse issues. But where did the substance abuse issues come from? Not knowing how to talk about our problems and not coping with our problems in the right way. 
Um, so, and out of all the police departments we have today, you know, there's really only three to 5% that have suicide prevention programs in those departments. So, so there's 18,000 police departments in this country alone. Three to 5% of those have only suicide prevention programs. So, because, you know, I think the idea is that, again, we'll go get help for a broken finger or a broken toe, uh, a gash on the head that we might get, you know, if we're, you know, struggling with somebody who's fighting with us when they're getting arrested. But we won't get help for, you know, if we're having problems in our marriages. We won't get help for, you know, if, uh, and dealing with relationship issues or, or our kids sometimes are using substances or law enforcement using substances. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot to actually ask for help. So we, you know, when I got in, our, my sole job was to make it easier for that to happen. And it's great that I get to, you know, do stuff all over the country. Uh, and not only training in suicide prevention, but training to change the mindset of what it, you know, is out there in law enforcement and in veterans and first responders, but really um, amongst society today, because men still struggle. And just think about when we grow up in high school, ah, oh, I heard someone's going to see, quote, like a shrink. And I hate using those words like that, but they're out there still. Uh, and, you know, the demeaning of the mental health profession. And if we're teased as little kids, that just pervades itself when we're adults. So we have to start in the high school level, at least maybe even in middle school, one to talk about mental health, to talk about suicide and to make sure that people feel comfortable. I have a lot of hope for the future generation right now because we are talking about it and they're talking about it. Um, but they have to learn from us too. They have to learn from the parents. They have to learn from the parents' friends uh, into um, just opening up that conversation. And allowing other people to feel that, you know, it might not be them, but it could be their friends that are going through a hard time. And that hopefully we're teaching them how to listen. One of the big questions I ask during every training is to all the attendees, so who would you turn to if you're in a crisis? I always say, go home and ask your family, who would you turn to if you're in a crisis? And to see what they say, because I say, does it have to be you that they turn to? No, but hopefully they turn to someone. But then I flip it around and say, who are you going to turn to? Because you have to be the example for your kids on who to turn to. Um, and like if, because they know when you're stressed out, they know uh, when you're having problems at work or anything else and what's going on. So if they see you doing positive things for you, hopefully they're going to do it too as they grow older and as they mature. So I've done a number of shows this summer about racism and social justice and dehumanization keep showing up as part of the, the reason for all this. But now it's hitting me that dehumanization is part of being trained to be a police officer, right? You're kind of taught, don't be a, don't be a human being now go out into the world. Yeah. Resonate? Like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's unfortunately, no, I think it's changing, but we have a lot more work to do. Um, it, it's, uh, 
it's changing the culture is what we need to do. Right. We can't be Superman every day. Yeah. Um, you can't be super, you know, luck, you know, you might have a peak point during the day where you can truly be Superman, but then you got to exhale and realize, you know, your kryptonite can be the emotions that you're refusing to acknowledge. Well, here's the sad part. Just like I said, I have my emotional backpack. I went into state police with my emotional backpack. Yeah. No one, no one gets through life without having an emotional backpack that right. we all have those heavy rocks. So you might have a good life going in, but some of the things that we, we do and see out there, okay, got to put this in, got to put this in, got to yeah. put this yeah. in. Yeah, you're, gonna exp- you're being trained to dehumanize yourself while seeing some really horrible acts of humanity yeah. and told you can only tell this circle of friends, but actually the circle of friends, we don't really want to talk to you about it. Or here's how, here's how we talk about it though. Wow. You had a hard one tonight, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We need to go out for a drink. Mm. And, and really we don't talk about <laughs> the incident. We go, Oh, we see that uh, bartender. She's cute or whatever. Yeah but we don't talk about the incident. It's, so it's almost like an extent, oh. it's just an extended version of, oh. Yeah, exactly, but with alcohol. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, instead of oh, and then you fill up that pain. You got to fill up that hole that the conversation that's not happening has to be filled with something. Or it's something bad. We, you know, we cope in a lot of different ways. Some people, we cope um, by, by alcohol. Some people cope by sex and having affairs yeah. and just, you know, or or going overboard on, you know, maybe some type of other addictions, gambling. I mean, there are a lot of bad things to go to, go do. Coping it's, isn't healing. No, not necessarily. No. You can either. cope. Um, yeah, coping is like a temporary fix for the most part. Yeah. I'm, I'm coping by, uh, you know, drinking. I'm coping by, you know, having, you know, just, uh, you know, sex with a stranger or whatever it would happen to be but we're really what we need to do is just talk to somebody that we trust that's it it sounds so simple well it, it is of, it, it is but it, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's easy that's the thing well if we're being judged on the fact that we talk about it so we have to choose the people that we trust to talk about it we have to have people that that maybe whether it's a first responder, maybe it's uh, outside, you know, the first responder field um, or go to the peer support team in that. Um, and, you know, but hopefully, especially men can talk to other men that uh, because it's, it's, it's great if we t- get to talk to anybody for that matter. Yeah. But if we get a chance to somebody to say another man to say, you know what? it's okay that you're feeling that way yeah. and there's, it's no harm, no foul. It's just like, and I'm glad you came and talked to me. And it's like, Oh shit. You kind of like listen to me and reinforce the theory that people do care and men do care. Yeah. You know? And, uh, it's just not even, it's not cool to feel it's, it's not cool to show that you care unless you're in a safe, open place where everyone feels safe in doing it. But it, yeah, you don't yeah. run down the street. Hey, buddy, I really love you. Like, it just, we're not there. <laughs> no, that's why, you know, I, I always say, if you're going to open up, you know, find that person who you can open up to and that you can trust. And there is, and if you don't find that person, 1-800-273-8255. Text 741-741. Um, you know, we can also, you know, um, 
the nice part is that there are is there's information on where to go to if you want to talk but also you know one of the reasons why i'm here today is that you know i, I wrote a chapter in this one book called the guts the grid and grind and it's kind of like a automobile repair guide or whatever that people can actually you know go to and say hey you know what uh and filled with stories about men going through difficult circumstances and that we are allowed to feel, but we can overcome those obstacles. Um, and, uh, and writing it was very cathartic. When I was asked to write a chapter in a book, it was like, okay, I'll do it. But then when I actually started to write it, talk about a flood of feelings coming back because talking about my brother was one thing, but, writing about it and going through all the emotions brought it all back. But, you know, after it was over, you know, and I stepped away, you know, hugely um, cathartic, uh, hugely emptying of the backpack. And, um, but also when we get other people saying, your story helped me there's nothing more better or more rewarding and yeah. than, than writing in that book. And I'll show it right now. Here's yeah. the book, even though the light is not going to necessarily <laughs> show it, but the people that were a part of creating the book are, you know, three of my really, really good friends today, Sally Spencer, Thomas Ager and Frank King, great people. And, uh, um, yeah. all Sally, out help, man. Sally and Frank have actually been on the show. Oh, so no doubt. And I, I can, I can tell you that Sally was another one of those people like this, probably that second person who told me that they, Sally lost her brother to Carson. Yeah. And, and I talked to Sally after class, one of the classes that she taught. And it was like another thing in a backpack. So hugely healing for me. And, and the, the fact that she is like a really good friend of mine today, uh, gotta love Sally. Cool. You know, I, I never get to talk to police officers and get behind the badge and especially about suicide. So I'd like to visit for one thing. Sure. When an officer takes their life, does the rest of the force gather and talk about it or, or just drink it away? Good question. So when I was in charge of the peer support program, we had six people die by suicide. Wow. And which is one of the reasons why I ended up getting involved in those committees and then going to, uh, you know, these organizations like the American Association of Suicidology, which is exactly where I met Sally. And, um, but police officers treat suicide in, in many different facets. Um, give you a, an example. Two suicides occurred within six months of each other. One was because they knew, that person knew certain people in the upper echelon, excuse me, um, actually was given almost like a line of duty death, which is huge with all the accoutrements, the ride of the horse, the um, uh, 21 gun salute and everything. Six months later, uh, someone else died by suicide, another trooper, and they wouldn't have that type of funeral for him because he unfortunately had taken his life in front of his girlfriend um it, and and i argued that that's wrong you can't have two different type of funerals um 
And, uh, and I was told, you better keep your mouth shut or you're not going to be doing what you're doing now. Um, so, but, you know, some people talked about it, but most people did not. Uh, some people blame the administration. Some people blame the person. Um, and unfortunately for the families, they felt lost in the shuffle because they felt like, you know, that state police family that they had, had left them or had even in fact, maybe kind of blamed them. Uh, because it had to be, you know, people think it had to be something. It had to be, especially because, you know, most uh, police officers that I know of did not leave any type of notes. And um, so, and a lot of times people, whether they're law enforcement or not, need someone to blame. And a lot of times the families get blamed in the aftermath of a suicide. But also sometimes so do some of the people surrounding them. It, it's sad, it's tragic, and it's horrible. And, but I was telling somebody earlier today that a lot of the, uh, those families and those spouse survivors, I'm still friends with today. And it's such a gift that, you know, um, I'll talk to them or, or text them on Facebook or, or give them a call just to see how they're doing. And, you know, they're doing really well. But I think only because, you know, our team reached out to those people and allowed them to talk about their trauma. Um, but, you know, we try to help have everybody who knew those troopers talk about their stuff as well. But kind of when we, what we did was we employed the critical incident stress management method, fusings into briefings, and we found in most of those that people didn't want to talk about it. Um, which is kind of like, um, you know, a lot of people talking about suicide that most people don't want to talk about because they don't know how to, they don't know how to, for one, they don't know how to deal with it because it's always goes back to the same things that I felt is the woulda, shoulda, couldas. If only I would have done something different. If only I would have listened to them. If only I would have known the signs. So then we got to actually you know, doing a training, you know, for the whole department looking out for the signs of suicide and, and trying things differently to get people to talk about, you know, and opening up and getting them to come to the program. So, you know, from those suicides that we had got some grant money and did a lot of things, we built a website, uh, um, we sent a lot of materials home to the families and the spouses because Troopers and police officers don't even tell their families about the program that we had because it's like uh, they don't want to know about it because they don't want to, we don't want to have that touchy-feely soft side, but really that touchy-feely and soft side saves lives. Yeah. I've had people who told me, I will never go to your program. I won't ever need the help that you guys do. But then I've had them come in and sob and say, hey, I need your help. I need you know, I need help. And the one thing that, you know, I will go to my grave with is that everybody who came to me for help, who had that suicidal ideation, they are still alive today. And I'll give you one quick story. So I had somebody who did not want to go. This person's friend called me up and said, uh, 
who was another trooper said, we need to get this person in treatment. They said that they were suicidal. And um, I said, well, you're, you heard that. So you have to actually get that person in treatment. You're a mandate reporter. I said, I will meet you at the treatment center. Um, because if they don't get help, that they can lose their job. Because we can then say, hey, um, this person told me that they're suicidal. And then you go through an involuntary commitment. If you go through an involuntary commitment with law enforcement, you lose your ability to carry a gun. So this person met me at the treatment center and they said, I hate you. I will never, ever talk to you again for the rest of my life. I can't believe you're doing this to me. And I said, you know, I'm sorry that you feel this way. My sole job is to get you help that you need right now. And hopefully you can heal from what you're going through. So I never heard from that person until a year later. And I'm at a, actually at a funeral where um, it had nothing to do with suicide. And um, so I'm walking by this closet. And this person grabs me into this dark closet. No lights are on or anything. And then this person gives me this the biggest hug and said, go in. Thank you so much. You saved my life. And first of all, I was kind of scared that somebody dropped me into a dark closet at a funeral home. but you know, again, those are the kind of rewards that, you know, you you can never, ever forget. And which keeps my continuing to do the work that I do. Because there are so many people in need out there. And, and people don't reach out to get help because they're afraid to be judged. And they're afraid to open up, especially men. And if we don't change that dynamic and mindset that this will continue because we're seeing suicide rates rise and yeah. go up and up and up. I mean, that, that's why the show's called Real Men Feel. And back to you talking about Superman. Like, no, Superman isn't just the guy that picks up the car. Superman is the guy that saves lives by getting people to open up and to talk. Yeah, well, I'm no Superman. but No, I'm, you've yeah. got to be. No, you can't. I'm not going <laughs> to allow you. You can't disown that. You can't, you know. Yeah, you are. No, how, but so how, are how, you. Right. So I, had, you. I can own that. We are saving <laughs> lives. I have no problem. I mean, it took me years. I mean, don't tell me I didn't start going, oh, but no, I get it. Like, this is powerful. We've got to, if we can't own the power of talking and being open, like, that's the only way people are going to believe it and get it themselves, I think. I am right there with you. And we need more people like you. Because, so part of what I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm starting a new nonprofit. I've been in, several nonprofits over the years, but this is kind of going to be like something that uh, is going to be very special because a lot of special people. I want you to come to our first conference and I want you to talk about everything that you do and, and the, what you've gone through in your life because the power of the voice is so huge. And that sometimes we underestimate what we do. Like, <laughs> and as I do, but uh, I, you, you're an amazing human being, and, and I am so proud to know you, and, and I am so appreciative that you gave me the time to talk here today, because hopefully this conversation will lead other men to open up, and there are, there are resources of where to go, and we can overcome the things that we deal with every day, um, because every day, sometimes there might be another rock going into that emotional backpack um but you're not alone in trying to deal with this and that there are you know we talked about the national suicide prevention lifeline and the crisis text line and you know there's several volumes of the guts to grit and the grind two that are out now two that are in the near future 
and there are amazing people to talk to and there are amazing people to listen. And uh, if we save one life today, then it's all worth it, this conversation. Yeah. But hopefully we impact people not only to listen more, but to open up more when they're having problems and to use the power of their voice. And if, and if, and if you're lucky enough that you're going through life and you want to give back, help us out with suicide prevention. And if, if your life has been touched and impacted by suicide, then please help us by opening up and sharing your story. Um, man or woman, whoever, we need the power of just simple storytelling and, um, and using your voice to, to make change. And if we stay solid and underground, because unfortunately, Andy, many men, especially those who attempted and lived, will never share that with anybody. And so you're Superman Plus. So you're not just, I might be Superman, but you're Superman Plus. And uh, I'm not going to partake in a Superman competition. <laughs> there's, there's not enough of us. I acknowledge that. So we're all there. Um, but yeah, I may open the show saying, you know, silence kills men. And it does. And talking can save lives. You, I learned this from a, a, a positive psychology professor years ago. You're going to, you know, how are you? Oh, and that gets you the uh, fine, whatever. No, how are you? Really? Yeah. And stay and wait and, and don't just say it while you're on the move. Like the people you want to connect with, how are you? Yeah. And the really, it looks like you're going through some shit. Tell me yeah, about it. And when you see it, don't just say it just to say it. Say it to me just like you said it. How are you? Because you're just not yourself. And, and you can't be afraid to ask that, you know, suicide question and because it uh, we have to get to the meat of this we have to ask if we know that because people make statements and they're often pushed off or oh no johnny would never do that or no govan would never even think about suicide well you know what maybe i would because because life gives us hurdles that sometimes seem insurmountable and you know and and just Somebody showing the act of caring can make all the difference in the world. And um, it's just asking it the right way and showing that we care and and saying, you know what? You haven't been yourself. I noticed this. I've noticed this. I've noticed this. And and I'm not going to let you leave until you tell me what's going on with you. And then if they tell you stuff, well, you know, sometimes people, you know, in your situation, think about suicide. Are you thinking about it? And make it as a matter-of-fact question. Just go, you're not thinking about doing something crazy, are you? Because is somebody going to really open up and say that? No, but people do it all the time because, or they won't ask it because they'll think that put that thought in their head, as you said earlier. But people actually don't want to know the answer. Are you thinking about suicide? I was always bizarrely honest. And I don't know if this is, you know, a, a, a trait of people that are contemplating suicide. But if someone asked me, I would tell them. But most people didn't ask. So I, did, I didn't need to lie about it because nobody asked. Right. <laughs> but even like I would like, actually, I am I'm like, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not. Nah, I'm actually no, I'm not safe right now. And you know, like, I, I, I'm going to tell you something that I really don't tell a lot of people is that. Um, and I'm ashamed to say this, but, you know, when I was especially when I was younger and uh, when I just started kind of dating again is that when people would ask me about my brother, I would say I wouldn't have a brother because I had the, that automatic response of, oh, and I didn't want to tell people because I was ashamed and how people would feel. 
because I didn't want that, want that rejection for one. And then I didn't want um, the fact of, of people thinking about me in a negative context or, or my brother for that matter. Um, and that, yeah, I, I, I felt selfish and, uh, and I would never do that today. And I would never be shy. Well, how'd your brother die by suicide? I, I would never um, be shy about that. And I always put it out there right now. But again, by talking about it, it just, um, you know, when I first began to realize the power of trusting people and opening up um, and you find out who in your life you can trust sometimes and you find out who you can never trust again, but that's okay. Um, and that we pick and choose the people that hopefully that, that we can go to when we need to and not be afraid to talk to a mental health professional because you know, there are a lot of good ones out there. And if you just like a doctor, if you don't like the first one you go to find somebody else, and there's a lot of great resources out there to go to. Yeah. I, I, I find time and time again, that the biggest lie men have been sold and bought into is that you better do it yourself, right? You're not a man unless you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps and do it yourself, take care of everything yourself. And that's, it's the freaking crock. Like I believe we can all handle anything that life throws at us, but not alone. It's, you, you don't live alone. Like yeah. we are social beings. Yeah. We make communities because alone you can't make it. And that's, no. that, that's the way, that's what, uh, I just no, I, pang I, it I, on I, that door over and over. Like, no, don't do it alone. No, that, that is not what a man means. No, no, no. <laughs> like that's a lie. As I said, one of those, you know, healing pieces for me is, uh, was my faith. But the, one of the, and, and also, but the other, I think big piece, there's two other big pieces was um, my friends, the, the people that, that got me into the suicide prevention world that allowed me to open up and let me share with them. Sally was one of them um, and my friend Heidi. And, um, but also, as I said earlier, remember when I told you about my girlfriend's dad? So uh, he, after I broke up with my girlfriend, he continued to call me and, uh, and proved to me that he was someone, if I wanted to, I never really did, but he's the only one who really asked me, so how are you doing? And just like you said it at, in the aftermath, but at that time, three days later, I couldn't tell you how I was doing or tell him how I was doing, but he proved to me the faith of that. He would always be there for me until the day he died a few years ago. Uh, he always proved that he, he truly loved me. And, and the fact that, you know, um, I dated his daughter for, um, for less than a year, but yet he made sure that I came over at least once or twice a year to dinner. He made sure that I, I got invited to his daughter's wedding to somebody else. Um, and, um, and he allowed me to actually, when he got cancer, told me to come over and sit with him for a while. And, um, and it was really sad when he died because a part of me died with him, but he was important, that important part of healing too. Um, so we, we, we can't get through this life alone at all. And that while my faith is strong, I still need God put, because of my faith, he put the people in my life that I can turn to. And he put people like you on this earth that 
that are helping many people every day. Um, and on top of that, you're doing shows like this. So we all have our like personal, personal lives where we get to help people and talk to people. But hopefully by our professional lives is that we're helping that much many more people heal, open up, and get the help that they need. Cool. Or just being able to listen to year. Yeah. Uh, Govin, thank you so much for sharing your journey and for allowing your journey to put you in a place of service. I hope you get dragged into many more closets and hugged. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely need those closets. Just not a funeral home, but anywhere I can get a hug. Uh, is, is there an ideal is there a website or you on social media if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you're up to um well you can always go see uh go van anthony martin uh on facebook and uh and pretty soon about probably about two months from now our organization is going to be called suicide prevention alliance so um so you if you go on my uh, facebook page you should see it there uh in the next couple months, uh, we're still in the process of trying to build a website and a logo and all that kind of good stuff. But I also just want to share real quick is that if you want to go get that guts, the grits and the grind book is if you go on, um, the G it's called the G three website. If you go to guts, grits, guts, grit, grind.com, that's where you can go get it and you'll find a lot more information on it. There's also, if you go, on YouTube and look up Guts Grit Grind. You can find uh, some little blurbs about that on there too. Cool. So as I said, there's two books out now. Um, I got them both here and uh, there'll be two more. So, but it's great stories about, you know, men going through, you know, their trials in life and overcoming them and healing from it. And, uh, um, and I'm just lucky to be one of those because if, I don't, to tell you the truth, I could, I could have been that attempt person if i didn't get the help that i needed sure uh yeah. very easily i i was just lucky enough to have some people in my life right at the right time yep yeah you get, speak up ask for help you're not alone what, whatever you're going especially now the whole freaking world's going through the same shit you, you can't yeah. you, you can't lie to yourself that nobody gets this nobody knows what it's like no a lot of people know what you like a lot of people can get through it and they can help you um it's so much harder to go it alone and and the odds of failing at your own life increase when you try to do it alone. So Absolutely. get the book, reach out, uh, call a hotline, reach out to me. Uh, what, what, whatever way works for you, do it. It can be the bravest thing you ever do, and it's the most rewarding thing you can ever do. Thank you so much, Andy. You've been Thank amazing. You. And like I said, I want, I'm going to like try and cajole you to get to that first conference at uh, – I'm in. I get to have next year. And, I'm in. Uh, no, and, no cajoling needed. <laughs> and uh, fly out the PA. <laughs> cool. I'm just in Massachusetts. It's easy. Okay. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah. So reach out, connect. Don't go through your shit alone. There's no reason to. And you know, a lot of common things that come up is is the need for friends and friendship. And you know, right? I recently put together uh, a PDF of of places that men can find like-minded men virtually and physically. So that's a free gift. Visit realmenfield.org slash gift. You get that download and you'll be on the newsletter list so you never miss another episode. You'll know about great guests like Govin coming up months before I know about it. No, I guess that's not possible. But weeks before it's released, at least. That, that's probably possible. So uh, thanks, Govan. Thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. Thank you for choosing to live 
Your life matters. You can have a positive impact every day if you choose to. This episode was brought to you by mensgroup.com. Visit mensgroup.com slash RMF and you can try a men's group for free. It's virtual. It's online. You can join from anywhere and give yourself a safe place to speak, to share, to grow, and to make a better life for you. You deserve it. Be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Join the private Real Men Feel Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash realmenfeel. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover Real Men Feel.